Good morning. In today's headlines, an armed rebellion in Russia fails over the weekend. The Wagner mercenary group has returned to its camps after withdrawing from its march on Moscow. We have the details. Officials react to the uprising in Russia, and we get an expert's analysis on what the mutiny could mean for the country's power structure. Extreme weather in southern parts of the U.S. Texas observes record temperatures, while other states were hit by tornadoes and severe thunderstorms. Cleanup is underway at the site of the Montana train derailment. Regulators are testing the water for hazardous material threat. Are you trying to get your finances under control? We speak to a finance, finance expert who explains some common mistakes you can avoid. Imagine being 93 years old and still having the energy to go on long hikes. We hear from a grandmother and her grandson who made history by visiting all U.S. national parks. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everybody. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, June 26th. I guess we have something that would count as a surprise for regular viewers. Our show has extended. That's right. Starting today, Entity Good Morning will actually be one hour long. So this is the good news, but we also have more serious things to turn to as well. An incredible turn of events. Moscow was put under state of emergency on Saturday for the first time since the invasion began. That's due to an armed uprising among Russian forces over the weekend. The mutiny near Moscow ended almost as soon as it began, but it's drawn attention to Russian President Vladimir Putin's grip on power, along with words of support from the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the rebellion and the response from officials. The Wagner private military company rebelled against Russia's military leaders over the weekend. Armed mercenaries of the group seized the Russian city of Rostov and then marched on Moscow. The leader of the group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, accused Russian forces of intentionally killing his men and called for an uprising. He claims Russian forces attacked Wagner field camps in Ukraine with rockets, helicopter gunships and artillery and killed close to 2,000 men. It's a claim Russia denies. Prigozhin demanded to meet with Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Russia's top general Valery Gerasimov at military headquarters to discuss the Russia-Ukraine war. Russian military analysts say Wagner mercenaries shot down six Russian helicopters and an IL-22 airplane, killing 13 airmen on their way to Moscow Saturday. Russian President Vladimir Putin called Prigozhin's move an act of treason and vowed the rebels would face inevitable punishment. But charges were dropped as part of a de-escalation deal. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko brokered an agreement with Prigozhin on Saturday. Prigozhin was granted amnesty for criminal action for treason and agreed to leave in exile in Belarus. Wagner forces withdrew to their camps. U.S. officials reacted on Sunday. Many say the mutiny shows weakness from Putin. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the mercenary uprising shows cracks in Putin's power. Sixteen months ago, uh, Russian forces were on the doorstep of, uh, of Kyiv, Ukraine, thinking they were going to take the city in a matter of days, erase the country from the map. <laughs> now, uh, they had to be focused on defending Moscow, Russia's capital, against mercenaries of Putin's own making. Former President Trump called the conflict between the Russian military and Wagner mercenaries a big mess. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese called the failed mutiny a sign of instability for Russian leadership. And this has been a disaster for Mr. Putin. He overplayed his hand and he got it wrong. And some of the consequences of that I think we saw playing out on the weekend. 
The best thing that Mr Putin can do is just to withdraw from this illegal invasion. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says Japan will be monitoring the situation and be looking to cooperate with G7 allies in dealing with it. Italy's Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani says the Russian government created the conditions for the rebellion by allowing Prigozhin to build up such a formidable private army. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Chinese and Russian diplomats met in Beijing after the uprising. A spokesperson for the Chinese Communist Party pledged support for Russia in a statement yesterday. It called the rebellion part of Russia's internal affairs and said the CCP supports Russia in maintaining national stability. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg had this to say. And yet another demonstration of the big strategic mistake uh, that President Putin made uh, with his legal uh, annexation uh, or his legal annexation of Crimea and the war against uh, Ukraine. As Russia continues its assault, it is even more important to continue our support to Ukraine. Stoltenberg also condemned Russia's announcement about deploying nuclear weapons. He called it reckless and irresponsible. The NATO chief says NATO remains vigilant, despite there being no indication of Russia preparing to use nuclear weapons. He says regional plans and logistics to address the threat will be discussed at the next NATO summit. To tell us what this will mean and to break things down for us, we're bringing in Gregory Copley. He's the president of the International Strategic Studies Association. Good morning, Gregory. First, just very briefly, what happened? Prigozhin said they faced no resistance on their way to Rostov, but then decided to turn around. What do you make of that? Well, there are a lot of things to make of it. Firstly, this was a mutiny directed uh, as a symbolic act against the defense minister, Shoigu, for failing to support the Wagner forces uh, in Ukraine. Uh, so it was not a coup attempt. Uh, and as a result, the Russian government and the armed forces were anxious not to allow this to, to become a confrontation. So they cleared the way. They allowed the Wagner forces to get into Rostov-on-Don, and then they started to move a bit further north and were warned against doing that. But the, the Russian armed forces cleared the way for them. So there was no uh, question of this being a, a victory or, or some kind of miraculous uh, um, acceptance of the Wagner mutiny attempt. Look, we've seen mutinies occur uh, throughout history in army, armed forces during conflict. Uh, particularly, you had uh, 100,000 French troops uh, right near the front lines with, with Germany in World War I in 1917, mutiny, uh, and uh, uh, tens of thousands of people were arrested. There were some executions and the like. We had the Royal Navy conducting a mutiny in the height of World War I. We've had a lot of mutinies occur in Western militaries, even during peacetime, small insurrections and the like. They represent tactical events. Uh, what we're seeing is that this is being misinterpreted in the West because of the angst uh, about Russia to uh, interpret this as a coup attempt against Putin. Uh, Prigozhin, uh, who led the, uh, the Wagner Group, uh, made it clear that he was loyal to Putin and loyal to Russia. So he was trying to get at Shoigu. And, and uh, whilst the government is uh, definitely not benefiting from this action, uh, it was Defence Minister Shoigu who is coming out looking like the failure in this operation. Uh, the, the, the question now will be how to get the Wagner Group uh, organised 
uh, within the context of command and control by the Russian armed forces. Uh, this is going to be a difficult operation because th these are not the same professionals as are in the Russian army or ground forces. Uh, they may be better in some respects, but they have a different structure. So they, they can't be actually absorbed directly into the Russian army. They'll have to be managed very, very carefully. And it's going to be a delicate situation over the coming days and weeks. But really, this is a situation which is very, very manageable. And we'll, we, we can expect to see the Russian government redouble its offensive operations within Ukraine as a result, in other words, to retake so ground and consolidate. Just, um, we have one more minute, and I really want to get in this question. So, because in broader terms, what are the implications um, with, with uh, Prigozhin now in exile? What does that mean in the implications internationally, like for the U.S., for example? Well, uh, the, the United States is uh, attempting to portray this as a, as a victory for Ukraine and therefore for the United States. The reality is that it's that would be overstating the situation. Uh, it's, uh, it's likely to actually solve a problem which has been building up uh, in the Ukraine front for the past uh, year for, for uh, President Putin. Now he can actually have a seamless control uh, of the Ukraine front. Uh, uh, the, uh, Putin, uh, Putin made it clear that he wasn't deterred by uh, Prigozhin's actions. In fact, he tried to deal very carefully with Prigozhin, but he needed to pull him out of the picture. So he's done that now. So the going forward, the Russian armed forces are going to be a lot more organized. Um, Prigozhin was loyal to Putin. Putin was loyal to the to, to Prigozhin in the extent that he he made he, he dealt with him very gently. Yes, he had to coerce him but uh, he was able to defuse the situation. So I think uh, we cannot assume that this is a any way a major breakthrough for Ukraine and its allies in this conflict. Hmm. Well, very fascinating insights. Thank you so much, Gregory Copley, President of the International Strategic Studies Association. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oil prices rose today after the revolt. Concerns are fueled by the political turmoil in Russia. Brent crude benchmarks were up as much as 1.3% in early Asian trade. One analyst says there are fears Putin could declare martial law. That would stop some workers from reporting for work and could halt millions of barrels of exports. And coming up, former President Donald Trump was in Washington and Michigan over the weekend. He vowed to demolish the deep state and stand guard over Americans' freedoms. Cleanup is underway at the site of the Montana train derailment. Regulators are testing the water for hazardous material threat. And the U.S. Department of Justice has filed its first ever criminal charges against Chinese fentanyl manufacturers. Stay tuned for those stories in just a minute. Former President Donald Trump had a busy weekend schedule, speaking in both Michigan and Washington, D.C. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what he discussed. Michigan is one of the Midwest states Trump lost to President Biden in 2020. It could be pivotal for retaking the White House. Trump brushed aside the indictments against him, calling them politically motivated. These incredible poll numbers are one of the main reasons the Marxist left is weaponizing the criminal justice system to try and stop us. 
and said the 2024 presidential election is the most important election America has ever had. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. The former president vowed to throw off what he called the sick political class that hates America. This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. Trump also attacked Biden's environmental policies, calling them heartless and disloyal to the American worker. They want every car to be all electric, except you don't make all electric cars too much. You know who does? China! China makes them. Across the plains of Texas. At the Faith and Freedom Coalition conference in Washington, Trump said that enemies within the country are waging war on God. The radicals are setting fire to our Constitution abolishing free speech, attacking religious belief. On abortion, Trump says he's against it, apart from three exceptions, rape, incest, and if the life of the mother is in danger. We will defeat the radical Democrat policy of extreme late-term abortion. Abortion could be a defining issue of the 2024 election. Republican candidates are wooing conservative Christian voters with commitments to ban the medical procedure. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed its first-ever criminal charges against Chinese fentanyl manufacturers. The charges are part of a larger effort to crack down on the production and distribution of the deadly synthetic opioid. The Justice Department said in a release that it arrested two individuals and unsealed three indictments in the southern and eastern districts of New York, charging the Chinese companies and their employees with a number of crimes. The indictments allege the defendants violated U.S. federal laws by knowingly manufacturing, marketing, selling and supplying precursor chemicals for fentanyl production in the United States. Over the past eight months, the defendants are alleged to have shipped more than 200 kilograms of fentanyl-related precursor chemicals to the U.S. in order to make 50 grams kilograms of fentanyl. As I said, this is a quantity that could contain enough deadly doses of fentanyl to kill 25 million Americans. The Chinese regime has been criticized for not doing enough to stop the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. The DOJ hopes that these charges will send a message to other manufacturers and help stem the tide of the opioid epidemic. The defendants are currently in China and are unlikely to face trial in the U.S. However, the charges are a significant step forward in the fight against fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. And the U.S. will be helping India develop its naval infrastructure. The two countries plan to build a hub for ship maintenance and repairs in the Indo-Pacific region. The announcement comes after Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's recent visit to the U.S. It's part of the India-U.S. defense acceleration ecosystem. The Department of Defense says the initiative will vitalize cooperation between the two nations' defense sectors. A Defense Department spokesperson said fostering strong defense ties between India and the U.S. is part of a strategic partnership. It's focused on cooperation in areas of military and national security. The move is likely to deter China from gaining a foothold in the country. Extreme weather has hit many parts of the southern U.S. over the last couple of weeks, and it looks like there is no end in sight yet. Over 50 million people in the region are under severe heat advisories, with many parts of Texas reaching record temperatures. The heat wave caused power outages in some areas. Other areas face tornadoes and severe thunderstorms. And today's cost has the details. 
The searing heat that affected many parts of Texas over the past week has been gaining momentum. Some parts observed record temperatures, with some far exceeding 100 degrees. Last Wednesday, Del Rio, Texas soared to a record 115 degrees. Similar temperatures were also observed in San Angelo and Laredo. On Friday, Rio Grande Village in Big Bend National Park reached 119 degrees, just short of the state's all-time record of 120. The heat wave has caused issues to the state's electrical grid in some areas, raising concerns with some officials about the grid's capacity. There has been really little uh, substantive change. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about changing uh, the energy market and there's been some legislation passed, but essentially for the last 20 years, the, the state of Texas has seen its capacity uh, really dwindle and there's really no capacity market here. Heat warnings have been expanded across 10 states in the south and southwest. Other regions experience tornadoes and heavy thunderstorms. Video footage shows a destructive tornado ripping through buildings in the city of Greenwood in Johnson County, Indiana, yesterday. At least one person died and another was injured. More tornadoes were recorded in the area, leaving dozens of buildings damaged. In Wyoming, at least eight people were injured when a tornado struck the largest coal mine in the U.S. The mine's operator said some damage was caused to the facility, but there were no casualties and no one was reported missing. Operations were suspended until further notice. Cost MNS, NTD News. Another round of bad weather could be hitting millions of Americans today. More than 90 million people are under threat of severe storms. The Mid-Atlantic and Northeast are under a level 3 of 5 risk and could see multiple rounds of thunderstorms. Other areas, including New York City, Boston, and Atlanta, are also at risk. In addition to thunder, the region could see damaging winds and large hail. This is the same storm system that produced nearly 400 storm reports Sunday and left nearly 500,000 customers without power. Right, thunderstorms and equipment failure at an FAA facility caused significant delays for air travelers across the U.S. East Coast on Sunday evening. Washington and New York were forced to briefly halt most incoming flights. Flights resumed from the Washington area after repairs to communications were completed, but delays continued for several New York area airports. So if you're flying to or from the East Coast today, it may be a good idea to check with your airline for updates. Tragedy struck. A man died after being pulled into a plane engine at a San Antonio International Airport in Texas. The unnamed, the unnamed crew member was sucked into the engine of a twin-jet Airbus on Friday. The horrific incident took place when Delta Airlines Flight 111 was taxiing to the gate after a flight from Los Angeles. The plane was fully loaded with passengers. Officials have not yet publicly identified the victim. An investigation is now underway to find out how it happened. This is the second accident of its kind in just six months. A 34-year-old worker was pulled into a jet engine in Alabama at the end of last year. OSHA investigated the incident and found that it could have been avoided if proper safety procedures were followed. And in Montana, cleanup is underway at the site of the bridge collapse and train derailment. Regulators said yesterday there is no sign of threat from the hazardous cargo that plunged into the Yellowstone River. A bridge that crosses the river collapsed early Saturday, sending multiple rail cars into the water. Several were carrying molten sulfur and asphalt. 
Montana Rail Link is the company that operates the train. A spokesperson said both hot asphalt and molten sulfur hardened when mixed with water and are not likely to move very far downstream. An environmental official said testing will continue until the cleanup is complete. The cause of the collapse is under investigation. And the U.S. Coast Guard has started an investigation into the cause of the undersea implosion of the Titan submersible. All five people on board were killed in the tragedy. The announcement came a day after Canada's Transportation Safety Board said it was conducted its own conducting its own investigation. The Coast Guard opened what it calls a Marine Board investigation on Friday. It is currently working with the FBI to recover evidence. That includes a salvage operation at the debris site near the Titanic, around two and a half miles below the surface. The Coast Guard says the findings will be shared with the International Maritime Organization and other groups. And it hopes in the future this will improve the safety framework for submersible operations worldwide. The Coast Guard is in touch with the families of the deceased. And investigators are taking all precautions should they encounter any human remains. Some New York City pizza joints are in hot water due to new rules targeting coal and wood-fired ovens. They could be forced to fork over a lot of money. New Environmental Protection Department regulations would make restaurants with such ovens cut carbon emissions by up to 75%. They would need expensive emission control devices to do so. Some pizza joints in the line of fire include Lombardi's in Little Italy, Arturo's in Soho, and John's of Bleecker Street in Greenwich, Greenwich Village. They say pizzas baked in coal and wood-fired ovens are their calling card. A city official says nearly 100 restaurants could be affected. One, restaurant, one pizza restaurateur who wished to remain anonymous says politicians and bureaucrats should keep their hands off their crust. I actually love the wood-fired uh, taste on the pizza, though. Yeah, that would be a shame. Right, uh, heading into break. Coming up, with energy demand expected to increase significantly in the coming years, Sweden is looking back towards nuclear to meet emission targets. And a breastfeeding counselor and mother of three faces censorship over her views on motherhood and men who identify as women. On the new episode of International Reporters Roundtable, nuclear weapons, while not in use since World War II, tests are still ongoing. Now with geopolitics heating up, their presence is looming. Who has them? What are their motivations? And what damage can they do? Guests John Rosamundo, Claire Lopez, and Brandon Weichert join us to discuss the dynamics of nuclear war today. What are the true threats? Tune in with NTD host Cindy Druk here and our guest panel, giving us a clearer picture of these global events. Saturday at 1 p.m. or Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The stories that need to be told, the voices that need to be heard, the truth you need to see. Get unbiased and in-depth news. Don't miss a beat. I'm Stephanie Cox at NTD. We're here for you.
Good to have you back. Heading to Australia, new laws there could bring millions of dollars in fines to Twitter and other social media companies. The government released a draft bill meant to target misinformation and disinformation. Public and industry consultation has been opened for the measure. The government says it aims to strike the right balance between protection from harmful content and freedom of speech. The government has pledged that its regular regulatory body, the ACMA, will not have the power to determine what is true or false on individual posts. It also promised not to impact professional news content or electoral content. The bill would require social media companies to develop a code of practice registered and enforced by the ACMA. The penalty for breaching the code would be a $2.75 million fine or 2% of global turnover, whichever is greater. If the code fails, a stronger form of industry standard would be created and enforced by the ACMA. Fines would be close to $7 million, or 5% of global turnover. Looking overseas, Sweden is planning to build new nuclear plants. This in a country that voted 40 years ago to phase out atomic power. NTD's Daniel Monaghan has more on the country's new energy targets. Sweden has changed its energy target to 100% fossil-free electricity from 100% renewable. The Swedish finance minister says the move creates the conditions for nuclear power, adding that Sweden needs more electricity production, clean electricity, and a stable energy system. The government expects a doubling of electricity demand by 2040. The new conservative government coalition says new reactors are essential to power the shift to a fossil-free economy. The coalition has also promised generous loan guarantees. Around 98% of electricity in Sweden is already generated from water, nuclear and wind. The state-owned utility Vattenfall is looking at building at least two small modular reactors and extending the life of the country's existing reactors. Critics say nuclear power is unsafe and takes too long to build. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Back in Australia, a breastfeeding counselor and mother of three faces constant censorship over her views on motherhood. Jasmine Sussex tells us exactly what happened. Only mothers breastfeed and that men don't breastfeed. Australian mother of three Jasmine Sussex found out her Twitter posts were banned in May. I received a notice from um, Twitter saying that the Australian government had said that I'd violated Australian law. She's been tweeting in protest against support for transgender people who were born male to chemically produce milk and breastfeed babies. But it's not the first time she was censored. In 2021, the Australian Breastfeeding Association, or ABA, expelled Sussex after volunteering as a breastfeeding counsellor for 18 years. What happens when you make breastfeeding um, an issue about uh, trans human rights rather than about the human rights of mothers and babies. Before her removal, Sussex criticized the ABA for publishing a book called Breastfeeding, Chestfeeding and Human Milk Feeding. It encouraged men who identify as women to breastfeed. Most Australians and, you know, most mums and dads around the world think this is a form of child abuse to use a baby to affirm your gender identity. You know, babies aren't there to make us feel good about themselves. Sussex has worked on research articles with medical professionals on the topic. She says there's not enough evidence that milk chemically produced by men could be safe for babies. If they were on any medication that could potentially pass through to the baby. We don't do medical experiments on newborn babies. 
The Australian mom's receiving a lot of support for her advocacy. She says a petition called Men Don't Breastfeed by the Women's Rights Network Australia is protesting both the censorship and the trend of men breastfeeding babies. Reporting by Chi Huin, NTD News. And now to some short headlines from around the world. Heavy rains in central Chile have caused severe flooding, leaving two people dead and over 400 homeless. Rescue teams have been deployed using helicopters and kayaks to help those affected. The government has declared a disaster zone. The floods come just months after wildfires and a severe drought destroyed hundreds of homes and left dozens dead. In Greece, conservative leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis won a landslide victory in Sunday's election, securing a second term as prime minister with a clear majority. This victory is seen as a significant endorsement of his leadership and policies by the Greek people. Mitsotakis has vowed to bring major reforms to the country, including job creation. A roller coaster accident in Stockholm, Sweden left one person dead and several injured. Eyewitnesses say the park's jetline roller coaster partially derailed during a ride. Emergency services, including ambulances, fire trucks, and a helicopter, were on the scene, and an investigation is underway. The park, which has been in operation for 140 years, has been closed until further notice. Smoke from wildfires in Canada covered the city of Montreal in smog yesterday. This led to several event cancellations and the city clinching the most polluted air in the world status, according to an air quality index. Canada is currently battling 465 active forest fires, leading to concerns about air quality and public health. Coming up after the break, your own priest in a phone, powered by ChatGPT. NTD spoke with coffee and COVID blogger Jeff Childers about the frightening impact AI could have on religion in the near future. Are you trying to get your finances under control? We speak to a financial expert who explains some common mistakes you can avoid, so stay tuned for that. Good to have you back with us. We're toning things down a little bit from our war coverage, but still, Evelyn, financial stress is a common and enduring problem, which has been exacerbated by global financial constraints such as the pandemic, recession, and high prices. A recent survey by Bankrate found that over half of U.S. adults report that money has a negative impact on their mental health, causing stress and anxiety. That's exactly right. So what are some common mistakes people make when trying to get their finances under control? And how do you get rid of those bad habits? I spoke to an expert for some finance tips. Joining me now is Nia Adams, a financial education instructor. Good morning, Nia. Good morning. It's great to have you. First, I really want to know what are some common financial mistakes that happen and how can we avoid them? So one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we create more debt than our wallet will allow. So that looks like we buy a lot of things and it's so easy to finance things now that we don't even think about the effect it might have on our income. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I feel that we make and then we avoid it, which is the second mistake. We get to a point where we feel like we should be at this certain point in our life and that doesn't match it. So we avoid it and push it to the side, but that ends up accumulating. And before we know it, now we have a big amount of debt and it's kind of holding us back. 
Now, what about, you know, keeping the goals? Because habits are hard to get rid of sometimes. Now, to keeping those goals um, that you set for yourself, any tips on how not to be swayed? Oh, well, to be completely honest, you might be swayed because that's just a part of it. You're looking for a long-term solution, not a quick one. This is a marathon and not a race. So you might be swayed, You might, but you basically want to create more positive Affirmation. So basically, you want to work to create a lifestyle. Not You're not going on a financial diet, and you don't want to think of it that way. So you want to replace your negative thoughts about money chores and make them more so money habits. So don't make a budget something that you don't want to do. Look at it just a window into your wallet. Then you want to think about, okay, I know this is very tempting to me, so let me think about this ahead of time on how I can do it. And lastly, I would say, don't completely deprive yourself. You want to have personal spending within your budget. Deprivation only is going to encourage you to splurge and then derail your financial journey. Mm, I think that's a very realistic way to look at that, so I appreciate you mentioning that you might get swayed. Um, now, going to the financial plan, how should people go about making one? Where to start? So first you wanna to start to be very realistic, open and vulnerable with yourself to decide exactly where you are and then be okay with that. That, you know, now you need to decide where exactly you wanna go because you remembering your goals and remembering your why is also something that's gonna help you in those moments when you are swayed. So remembering your why and why do you want to improve your finances? What benefits will it have? How will it improve your life? Then you want to create a budget. The budget's going to tell you what you have now, where your money is going, and it's going to give you a way to look and see what changes can I make to push me closer to my financial goals. And then you want to create a plan. So if I pay off this amount of debt and I improve my credit score by this amount, this will get me here. This is how you want to look at it. And then I normally recommend make it something that you can see regularly. Maybe make a vision board. Put it on your screensaver on your phone, something that's going to keep it front of mind so that it keeps you focused. Great points. Thank you so much, Nia Adams. I appreciate your tips today. Thank you. You know, I really liked how she said that it's just realistic to make mistakes. And it's okay. She also said that, you know, this is the first thing she tells her clients when they want to recover from a mistake because many just beat themselves up over it. You know, one thing that really resonated with me was how she was talking about the lifestyle. You know, I cook some food at home to save a little bit of money and going out gets a little expensive. And even buying retail is expensive too. Like if you buy wholesale, Almonds oh, can be yeah. $4 a pound as opposed to like $10 or more. That's a, yeah, these are actually some really good habits to form, I think. Good point. Good tips. <laughs> Turning now to artificial intelligence, it's set to change the modern world in a variety of ways. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with Coffee and COVID blogger Jeff Childers on what the rapid AI developments could mean for religion. Attorney Jeff Childers says the same AI technology that's in ChatGPT will be put into everything that runs on electricity. That means watches, headphones, and radios with people's TVs advising them on what to watch. But the effect on religion is where Childers says the real danger begins. Uh, I'm an evangelical Christian, right? And so I'll have an idea in the middle of the night and I'll think, hey, I wonder, you know, in the book of Revelation where it talks about this uh, little horn, I wonder if there's any other reference to a little horn anywhere in the Bible. And so I'll jump on ChatGPT and I'll say, ChatGPT, 
you know, how many times does the Bible talk about a little horn? And it'll, you know, tell me the answer. The attorney says people are going to be encouraged to develop a relationship with their AI. And AI avatars on your device will look and sound like someone you trust. Or maybe you want Ronald Reagan, right? Or maybe you want Gonda. And now here's where we take the step. Maybe you want your avatar to be Jesus or Muhammad or um, one of the Hindu gods or Buddha. He says as people feed their AI avatar with their deepest thoughts and feelings, all the information will be collected. And who has access to it? And who else is the AI talking to about you? Perhaps it will discuss your political inclinations and books you showed interest in. How much of a step is it to go from there to the government actors or whoever, the AI programmers, tilting the AI that you see, your interface to AI, in order to influence you a little bit, to make you a better citizen? right? To, to help you think about things the right way, to help, help you stop believing in misinformation and disinformation. Childers believes the next step could be a whole new AI created religion. They're going to ask the AI, they're going to say, listen, take all the best parts of all the world religions and throw away all the bad things, all the racism and the discrimination and, you know, uh, uh, judgmentalism and, and all that stuff. Just take all that out and, and boil it down and make us a new religious text and make it be scientifically accurate. Then comes the peer pressure to get you to accept the new religion. You don't have to give up your old religion. This is like an add-on. You can do this one too, right? If you have a question in the middle of the night, your AI priest will always be available. And it is going to be a religion that is created by man, for man, in man's image. Childers says that brings it full circle to the fall of Satan and people wanting to replace God with their own God. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, a 93-year-old and her grandson embarked on an epic journey, and there are more adventures on the horizon. And a renowned ethnologist discusses parenting across five traditional societies his work provides insight into how children are raised, how they learn, and what's expected from them. That story after the break. Welcome back. School education has been in the spotlight lately, and of course parenting is also an important factor in education. There are plenty of opinions about parenting, and everyone seems to be an expert, especially in the age of social media. But some say modern parents could learn a thing or two about child-rearing from traditional societies. Entity's Andrew Thomas reports. Renowned ethnologist Cornelius Grove characterizes traditional societies as those that haven't been influenced by the modern urban world. His latest book, entitled How Other Children Learn, What Five Traditional Societies Tell Us About Parenting and Children's Learning, gives insight into how children are raised in those societies, how they learn, and what's expected of them. In the great majority of traditional societies, children begin to take responsibility for helping to support the family, to do things that the family needs, 
uh, from a very young age. During the course of his research, Grove found that kids as young as three years old take on family responsibilities. As soon as they can walk, they perform tasks such as gathering kindling for a fire or carrying water home. In those societies, parents actually need their children. In our society, with few exceptions, parents do not need children in any practical way. Modern societies typically coddle their children. In the U.S., parents are legally required to care for their kids until they turn 18. Traditional societies have a utilitarian attitude towards the youth. We love them. We want them to do well. We want them to be happy. Having happy children isn't really a concept in a, in a traditional society. They want children to be useful. We want them to be happy. In some instances, Grove said he was blown away by the tasks that young children take on. In the case of the Quechua Society in the highlands of Peru, kids as young as eight years old look after the family's herd. It's a huge responsibility, considering that livestock is usually the family's livelihood. So if the kid takes them to a distant pasture and a wolf comes in and takes one away, or a, a thief grabs one and runs away, or, you know, bad weather or whatever, that kid has got to figure it out. Modern societies like to think they have parenting all figured out, but looking at the responsibility and larger roles of traditionally raised children could give insight on how we raise modern kids. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. You know, I think that's a very interesting point he makes. Uh, tradition aside, you know, just learning from all these cultures, these other cultures that have gathered so much history and the wisdom that comes with it, right? And I think that's very interesting. Good point, yeah. yeah. And it's important to teach children a little bit of work ethic at a young age. That's true, yeah. That on top of everything. Okay, so imagine being in your 90s and embarking on an epic adventure. Well, that's exactly what one woman from Ohio did. She and her grandson visited some of the most beautiful spots in the U.S., and made history in the process. At 93 years old, Grandma Joy Ryan made history. She became the oldest living person to visit every U.S. national park. It all started when she was 80. Her grandson Brad took her for a hike in a local state park. It was there Joy told her grandson she wished she had witnessed more of the great outdoors in her life. Brad says from that moment on, a seed was planted in his mind. And I thought, here's this woman hiking with me. She's got the zest for life, and she's been trapped in this little town her whole life, you know? I thought, this is something that I want to, I want to take her on an adventure at some point in life. But it would be another five years before the pair would embark on their quest. Then in 2015, they visited their first destination, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. This marked the beginning of a beautiful and inspiring seven-year journey. There are 63 U.S. national parks that are scattered all throughout the lower 48 United States. It has taken us over 60,000 miles on the road to reach all of these places. And then we have other U.S. national parks that are in Alaska, Hawaii, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And then most recently, we visited our 63rd and final U.S. national park, which is the National Park of American Samoa, which is in the South Pacific. You want to show the world what you can do with your knees? <laughs> yeah, here we go. Joy, who had recovered from a bout of illness before, found that the hikes reinvigorated her zest for life. We've seen uh, beautiful things like the redwood forest. We've seen gorgeous waterfalls. 
and uh, we got to see um, the bears catch the fish in uh, Alaska. And I've always wanted to be able to do that. And that despite her ripe old age, she can still have fun being active. Once you've whitewater rafted with a 91-year-old, you start to really see uh, aging in a different way. So I'm really grateful that she has taught me to lean into the possibilities for my life at every age and being able to see her zip line and whitewater raft and roll down sand dunes and go hiking with me. That's been, it's been one continuous beautiful experience. Now, after visiting every U.S. national park, the pair plans to touch base on all seven continents. They are headed to Kenya for a National Geographic expedition in July, proving you're never too old for an adventure. Man, I just hope I will be this healthy at her age. That's awesome. But yeah. there's also so many beautiful national parks in the U.S., right? Yeah, oh yeah, there are. Yeah, I've been to Big Bend, desert in Texas, Glacier oh, National awesome. in Montana, and then uh, Yellowstone in Wyoming. It's oh, really beautiful. It's definitely one or two that I will cross off my bucket list in the future, too. Yeah, it's good. Sounds great. <laughs> and there's a new surfer getting a lot of attention at one California beach. Sammy the Seal is making waves. The baby seal was caught on camera climbing onto surfers' boards in San Diego. Surfers are seen making room for this harbor seal pup on their surfboards. Oh, you gotta be careful there. A day after he showed up at the Pacific Beach and hung out with those who usually hang tent, some marine experts were mystified. Harbor seals are usually standoffish, but this one was extra friendly, climbing aboard and then rolling off. Instead of being antisocial, he was totally in sync riding the waves with abandon. <laughs> the surfers named him Sammy after the children's book. SeaWorld San Diego's phone rang off the hook with calls about Sammy. The rescue team checked on him and found him healthy, but why would he gravitate to surfboards? The million dollar question. Yeah. But he's just having the time of his life. That's awesome, so cute. <laughs> would you ever do that, ride with an animal? I would, I totally would. I'm an animal lover. Wow. But you it's probably not, but, Wild animals are also dangerous, right? Don't, anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> and you gotta be careful, those animals can move and throw you off balance. That's right, as we have seen. <laughs> all right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning@ntd.com. Write us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching, I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.